Father in heaven, speak now. Lord Jesus, we need to hear you. We need to see you through these words that we may trust you. We pray that you'll help us to see and to hear, to not have blind eyes and deaf ears. We pray that you would illumine our hearts and awaken our minds so that we may may behold your goodness and your glory, that we may trust you all the days of our lives. We pray this for our joy everlasting. Amen. I'm the father of three children. Uh, my older son is Jaden. He's six years old. My middle daughter, Janessa, is about to turn five at the end of October. My goodness, it's already September. Um, and my youngest daughter, Ellie, turned two uh, back in June. And when you're a parent, you'll quickly, you'll soon learn, and Andrew and Mel and Chris and Joy will soon learn it, uh, uh, sure enough, that when your child gets to about 18 months, they, they enter this stage, uh, also known as radically cute, uh, where they just become so much more engaged. They, they begin to talk to you, but they can't use words, so they just kind of babble in tongues. And you, 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 know, you, you preach 1 Corinthians 14 to them, saying that you, know, you can't speak in tongues without interpretation. No. Um, and it's just really cute. Uh, but they're a lot more engaged, and they, they, they speak with you, they're talking with you, um, and they're trying to learn their world. Uh, and it's at this point that you can really begin parenting them and, and talking to them about the things that they can and they can't do, because they will engage with you, and they'll say yes, no, and they understand. So imagine for a moment now that I've got Ellie, who's two, who's just turned two, and I say to her, okay, Ellie, you can play in Daddy's office, but don't touch Daddy's tablet, it's charging. Ellie... Don't touch Daddy's tablet. Ellie, play over here. Don't touch Daddy's tablet. Ellie, don't touch. What am I expecting her to do? Touch it, right? Play with it. But I have to repeat myself over and over again to get the message through because I'm expecting her to touch it. Now, we're about the middle point of the book of Isaiah. And over the last four weeks in particular, we've heard the same message over and over and over again. We opened up in the book of Isaiah. Pastor Ben uh, preached for us, and he basically laid out the big issues in Isaiah. Their sinfulness, their idolatry, their lack of justice, and the problem is of God's coming judgment upon them. Now, in chapter 6 to 12, we opened that up, and I walked us through and said how ultimately God will judge his people, but he will also uh, save them. He plans to save them through someone, through a child called Emmanuel, right? through all the, the, these, this kind of motif of children in that section. Not only will he save his people through that child, but he will judge uh, those who are sinful and, and rebellious against him uh, through that same child. And then from 13 all the way to uh, about middle of uh, chapter 28, I think chapter 27, 28, uh, we got reminded again and again that as as God turns his attention to all the nations surrounding Israel and Judah, shooting them down one by one, reminding his people, you cannot put your trust in these nations. It makes no sense because they are going to ultimately be judged by God. Do not trust them. Then he 
turn to last week, our, our, our chapter again, uh, from chapter uh, 20, 28 to 35. Again, a big reminder, do not put your trust in the nations. Your alliance with Egypt, does ma- it makes no sense. Trust God. Now, as we come here to the middle part of this book, again, we hear the same beat, the same beat being hit. Trust God. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust God's word? Again and again and again, we're hearing the same message. Why? It's because of the temptation, the constant temptation in God's people that not only will they forget, but that they will not trust him, that they will turn away and trust something else. So far in the book of Isaiah, we've also seen God presented very clearly as king over his people. As we enter into this middle bit, we're now going to meet a human king, and he's going to act in very human ways. In today's passage, in this middle section, chapters 36 and 37, uh, 38 and 39 carry this kind of middle section. Ben's going to speak on that next week. Uh, But in chapter 36 to 39, we see Hezekiah act, uh, a human king, but acting in a very human way. He acts in very human ways because sometimes he gets things right and sometimes he does stupid things and gets things wrong. Today we're going to see the things that he gets right. So let's open up the the passage and we uh, set the scene. Uh, Chapter 36 verses 1 to 3. They set the scene for us and we're told that this is the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign. Now if you're familiar with the kings, if you've ever read through 1 and 2 Kings, you'll see this kind of pattern very clear. Sometimes there are good kings, most of the time there are very bad kings. Right? If the king is good, the people and the nation are generally doing alright. If the king is bad, the people and the nation are generally doing not well. Hezekiah is a good king. By the 14th year of his reign, he had removed idol worship in the land. He had destroyed an artifact from Moses' time because it was being worshipped uh, idolatrously. And finally, he had booted out the Philistines to the south of Judah's territory. He had done very good work. Now and now, as we open up our passage in Isaiah, the king of Assyria, King Sennacherib, he's been moving through Judah. He's smashing each and every fortified city on the way to Jerusalem. Uh, some, uh, I think the count is up to about 46 cities that he's taken. He's camped himself at this area, this little town called Lakish, around 20 kilometers down the road. To get a feel for that, it's between here and Sunnybank, right? So he's just down in Sunnybank, and he's knocking on the door of Jerusalem. He sends an envoy, a high-ranking ambassador uh, figure known as the Rabshakeh, if you're wondering what that word meant. Rabshakeh is this kind of envoy, ambassador uh, kind of figure. And so the Rabshakeh rocks up to Jerusalem, And he meets his own envoy from Hezekiah. Hezekiah sends three men, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah, and each of these men having some importance in Hezekiah's administration. Now, as they arrive and they begin discussion with the Rabshakeh, the Rabshakeh starts with what only can be described as a three-point sermon. Three points about the misplaced trust of Jerusalem. First, he kicks off in chapter 36, verses 4 and 5, as we had read out for us. And he states that their trust in their own words is misplaced. You see the, string, uh, the sting in the opening words in verse 5. Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? 
in whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 18, we find out that Hezekiah actually rebelled against Assyria. But when Assyria appeared, he attempted to appease them by giving them gold and silver. But just like trying to appease the school bully who takes your lunch money and threatens your life anyway, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, takes the tribute and threatens Jerusalem anyway. And so the effect of these words must have been unsettling. Who do you trust now? You tried to settle this by your own effort, and it hasn't worked. So who do you trust? Because your trust in yourselves is rubbish. Second, he repeats what we heard last week, that trusting Egypt was not a good idea. In verse 6, he compares Egypt to a broken reed as a walking stick. A reed is a very thin twig-like plant that grows near water. You imagine leaning on that as a walking stick, snapping, and then having it pierced through your hand. That's what he says trusting Egypt will be like. Now, given that Assyria knows this, and that Isaiah had just warned them about this, it kind of defies belief that Hezekiah thought that the alliance with Egypt was a good idea. And the final point in the Rabshakeh sermon is that Jerusalem's trust in God, in Yahweh, is also misplaced. Now, this final point actually needs a little bit of teasing out because he doesn't just simply say that Yahweh is untrustworthy. There's a mixture of truth, misunderstanding, and a little bit of deception. Read with me again from verse 7. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now. Make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Now you can see quite a few things going on here. Uh, First, there seems to be a little misunderstanding in verse 7. Now the Rabshakeh argues that Yahweh is not worth trusting because Hezekiah himself tore down the high places and the altars to Yahweh. But that's not what happened. Hezekiah did tear down the high places and the altars, but the high places and altars were places of idol worship not places to worship God. So there's a bit of misunderstanding there. Second, he offers some military aid. We'll give you horses, 2,000 of them. If Assyria could spare 2,000 horses, then how big was their army? Because you know you do not arm a foreign nation more powerful than your own. I think uh, actually the, the offer here from Assyria is a little bit of a token gesture. And the Rabshakeh knows this. He says in verse 9 that their alliance with Egypt, it's it's going to be no power, no match for their military power. And then the final kicker is in verse 10. After saying that Yahweh can't be trusted and that their alliance with Egypt is weak, he turns and then says that Yahweh himself told Assyria to come up and destroy Jerusalem. Now, what are we to make of that? See, already... Isaiah has warned of exactly the same 
thing. God is going to raise up Assyria and he's going to use them to judge the sinfulness of Judah. But now the Rabshakeh is saying that God spoke to them to do just that. Now this could be a bluff, it could be wartime propaganda, or it could be the truth. We actually don't know. The ambiguity then of this statement must have been terrifying. Judah was already being warned that God was going to smash them by the Assyrian Empire, and now the Assyrians are echoing those exact same words. The effect must have been terrifying. So, what is Jerusalem to do? What's the application point from this three-point sermon? Very simple, trust in us. Trust in Assyria. The Rabshakeh's final argument is that the gods of the other nations, they didn't save them. (laughs) No, Yahweh will be the same. So in response, trust in us. The three boys, uh, the three Jews who are sent there, uh, listen silently and they slink away in silence. See, in the life of God's people in the Bible, there are many moments that test their trust. The word and message here of the Assyrians have been plentiful, and there are a lot of, uh, and there is a lot here for the reasonable person to conclude that the best option would be to bow down before them. Right? They have the bigger army. They have the power. They are at the door. Give them what they want. So how would Hezekiah, the leader of God's people, how would he respond? As we open up chapter 37, Hezekiah's response to this news is to mourn and repent. Right? Tearing his clothes, wearing sackcloth, which is basically like you know, a hessian bag, like a a, bag, a, a brown bag that you would put potatoes in, sackcloth, that was a sign of taking things seriously. So he turns to Isaiah, God's prophet, for help. But notice again, verse 4, chapter 37, verse 4, that even though he trusts God's prophet, there is a little bit of distance between Hezekiah and God. Have a look at verse 4 again. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. You see it right there at the end. You see those words. The Lord your God has heard. There's a sense here, I think, that Hezekiah sees what Assyria is about is offering. He puts that offer on the table. And I think in saying the way, in phrasing the things the way he has, he may be putting this option of going to Isaiah on the table as well. He's keeping all his options on the table. Assyria's offer on one end and Isaiah's offer on the other. But soon enough, Isaiah responds in 37, verses 5 to 7, Do not be afraid. God will send them away, and Sennacherib will eventually die. Uh, Notice in chapter 37, verses 5 to 7, that God's response is very brief. The Rabshakeh's sermon in chapter 36, when you tally it all together, goes for about 400 words, just like how some preachers don't know when to stop. God's response goes for around 60 words. Well, that's a challenge there, isn't it? Will Hezekiah trust God on so little? 
sometimes the more we talk, the more we convince ourselves of a position. Uh, the bigger the decision, especially when you're buying something, the more you talk to someone to work it out. So imagine you, you have a really big decision to make, like buying a house. Right, buying a house, it's, it can, it's probably going to be one of the biggest decisions you make in life. So you're buying your house, you've talked to the bank, you've talked to your parents, uh, you've talked to the house inspector who's had a look around, and they're all telling you that this is not a good idea. Right? This house that you want to buy, that you're looking at, not a good idea, not a good purchase. Imagine then you start uh, chatting with Pastor Ben. He's a godly guy. Right? You show him a photo of the house, he looks at it and goes, yeah, that's not too bad, you should get it. Who would you trust? And would you trust his words enough to buy that house? See, remember the thing about the Old Testament, an Old Testament prophet. Right? The thing about an Old Testament prophet is that they would say things, it would be confirmed... And then that confirmation would show that they were the real deal. Listen to them. But so far in the book of Isaiah, what we've seen is lots of prophecy, lots of poetry, but nothing really as yet confirming the prophetic ministry of Isaiah. Hezekiah is being asked to trust God's word through Isaiah. And he's being asked to trust very little But before we get an answer to that question of whether he does trust, the story actually just moves on. Uh, Sennacherib has been camping down the road from Jerusalem, but now a competing interest draws his attention. He has to turn to the land of Cush and the king over there. So he shoots off one more letter to Hezekiah and Jerusalem, and it's utterly blasphemous. He compares Yahweh to the gods of the other nations and basically says that since these gods could not save these people, their people... Yahweh is just as useless. Now, if we were in doubt before about Hezekiah's reaction and his relationship with God, in chapter 37, verse 14 onwards, all doubt is dispelled. Hezekiah receives the letter, he reads it out, and he literally lays it before God. He goes into the temple and spreads it out before God. That is total surrender. For the first time in Hezekiah's story, he is laying it all out before God and waiting for God alone to act. Now, if you want to know what prayer is, this is a wonderful example. Total surrender and a recognition that God alone acts to help and to save. And it's a wonderful model of prayer for us as well. Uh, walk me through it and notice what Hezekiah does. Have a look at chapter seven, 37, verse 15 and 16. 37, 15 and 16, verse 15. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. So the first thing he does is he starts by acknowledging who God is, not because God needs the reminder but because Hezekiah needs to be reminded of who he is addressing. Verse 17, Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open our, your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. He asks God to hear, 
Now, to hear doesn't just simply mean to audibly hear his prayer, but to listen and to respond. It's a humble recognition that answers to prayer are God's prerogative. Just because we pray doesn't mean that we have the right to the answers we seek. He asks God to hear and respond. Verse 18, Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. And again, here he lays out the need. Assyria is at our door. They have smashed their way through the other godless nations and cities. Again, he doesn't lay this out because God needed reminding or a recap of the situation. But prayer like this feeds his own heart. It reminds him of his deep need for God. And you pray like that, when you lay out what's happening, it's not so that God can remember, oh yeah, that's right, that's what's happening in your life. It's to remind you of your deep and profound need for God to act. Verse 20, So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Finally, he asks for help. And for the first time, he now says, our God. Before he spoke with Isaiah and spoke of Yahweh as your God, now he says, our God. In this moment of desperate need, he realizes that God is God and God is his God. And to this personal God, he asks for help. And he gives biblical reason for help so that the nations of the earth will know that Yahweh alone is God. This is God's desire throughout the whole Bible. You could argue that it's at the center of the Bible itself. God desires to be known among the nations, known for his worthiness to be glorified. In this prayer, we see a profound truth about all prayer. Prayer is the way we express our trust in God in the deepest, in the rawest and most profound way. Hezekiah can do nothing about his urgent need than to lay it before God. And so with us, in not only our urgent needs, but in all of our needs, we can do nothing more profound than to lay them before God, trusting that he alone can act. Now, in a big poetic flurry, God responds through Isaiah with a resounding yes. Right? Verses 21 to 36 that we didn't read. Basically, the following is said. Yahweh will not be mocked. Assyria will be cut down. God has planned for this judgment on Assyria from long ago. God knows the rage of Assyria and will judge them for it. And he gives a sign to Judah of God's promise that he will do this. At some point in the near future, they will find rest in their land. Assyria will be gone. They will enjoy the food of their crops. And then finally, in verses 33 to 35 of chapter 37, he promises to defend the city. You see, in, these big, in all these verses, you see uh, God's supreme sovereignty. Nothing is outside of his powers and abilities to control. No human actions taken by surprise. God simply cannot say, oops. And then in the final verses, we have a very surprising short story to close. 
Have, turn with me to chapter 36, verse 30, uh, chapter 37, verse 36. Chapter 37, verse 36. Let's read this uh, little section at the end. And the messenger of the Lord, the, the word angel in Hebrew also means messenger, went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshipping in the house of Nishrok, his god, Adramelech and Sharazah, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped to the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. See, Sennacherib had marched his massive army to the gates of Jerusalem. But the next morning, they were all dead. 185,000 gone. Now, there are quite a number of theories uh, to explain what's going on. Uh, some of them very compelling. But our response to these verses uh, reveals whether or not we are going to trust God at His Word as well. See, whatever the reason for what happened here, we shouldn't miss the point of what's happened in these two chapters and why this finish here isn't just an historical end note, but a delicious poetic bookend to this story. What happened in chapter 36? The king of Assyria, posing as the king of the world, sent a messenger to taunt Jerusalem, ridicule God, and claimed to be the most powerful. What's happened here now at the end? God, the true king of the world, sent his own messenger in answer to the taunts and the ridicule, showing that those claims to power were empty. 185,000 dead, plus one more. The story fast-forwards then very quickly to uh, 20 years down the line to the death of Sennacherib at the hands of his own sons. God's judgment fulfilled. Delayed a little, but always fulfilled. This is a story, this story is a war of words. The words of Assyrians, the words of the Assyrians versus the words of God. Whose word proves to be trustworthy? Whose word will you trust? And we also see that trusting God's word ultimately leads to safety and prosperity. It's also a story of how much God desires for his word to be trusted. Right? He speaks clearly, succinctly, in a way that Hezekiah cannot ignore. In the confusion over whether or not God has really spoken to the Assyrians, and in the terror of the threats that come from the Assyrians, God speaks a clear word of comfort and trust to his people. God desires that his word be trusted. And he desires his word to be trusted so much that one day he would send his word in the flesh to make it ultra clear. In the coming of Jesus, we have the Word of God Himself living, breathing, dwelling among us. If you're sitting here today and you're craving to know what God is like 
and what he would say to you, then you need look no further than to look at Jesus himself. 800 years after Isaiah, one of Jesus' disciples named John wrote this. Turn with me in your, in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 18. If you found it, help your neighbor find it as well. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Jesus, he, has made him known. Jesus makes God known. John would go on to say this as well. I'll turn over the page to chapter 3, verse 36. Chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What is John saying here? He's saying that in Jesus, we meet in the pages of the words of Scripture, we meet and see God's desire to be believed and trusted. And Jesus also shows us what it's like to keep trusting God's Word, even in the face of extreme pressure and temptation. Now, earlier, Alice read out for us Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 to 11, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. All right, in, in this series, we have a, uh, Ben and I have intentionally had one reading from Isaiah and one reading from the New Testament that relates. So I wonder what was going through your mind as we read through Matthew 4. How does this relate to Isaiah? Did you notice that as we were reading it, that this temptation in the wilderness is actually also a war of words? Another moment in history where God's king is spoken to and tempted to turn away from trusting God. And how does this king react? He trusts. He uses scripture three times to rebuff the temptations. And he does it not just for his sake, but he survives these temptations on our behalf. Ultimately trusting his father's word right to the very end, dying on the cross as our saviour. If we trust this word made flesh who died and was raised to life, then we will find salvation. See, here's the, 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 the big idea. Here's the main point. Assyria was a great big enemy, seemingly undefeatable. Hezekiah trusted God and his nation was saved temporarily. We have an even bigger enemy, sin and death, completely undefeatable. Jesus trusted God and all who trust Jesus are saved eternally a king facing an undefeatable enemy trusting god our king facing our biggest enemy trusting god who do you trust i can't promise this is the last time in this sermon series in isaiah that i'll ask that question because we need to hear it again and again and again. 
See, as we come out of this sermon, we ask the question, so what? What does this have to do with us? That's the first question, I think, that we need to grapple with. Who do you trust? And how do you express that trust? Hezekiah expressed his trust in prayer. Here's the big thing that we need to think about. Uncle Mike was up here just before sharing that prayer came out very clearly as one of, as one of the major values of our church. But is it a value that we say with our lips but do not believe with our heart because we just don't do it? We want it to be valued, but do we actually value it ourselves? How, who do you trust and how are you expressing it? Prayer is one of the chief ways that we express it. Secondly, when the Assyrians came and the Rabshakeh taunted, you, you get a little glimpse as to how difficult it must have been to trust God. And we too live in a world where trusting God is increasingly difficult. It's, it's always been tough to trust God. But I do think that even more so today, there are many more temptations, many more distractions and taunts that make trusting God all the more difficult. We live in a world of constant distractions, right? Some of them trivial, some of them serious, right? Some of us, we've got families to take care of, we've got homes to keep in order, children to attend to. And if it's not that, or if it's not the other things, the big major things in our lives, we have other things that consume our energy, like the gentle glow of the screens that surround us, constantly demanding our attention. We live in a world of constant temptations, some of them that stroke our ego and our pride and our coveting. The latest gadget, the upgrade, the latest and newest thing. If you own an Apple product, you will know this feeling of getting that email from Apple with the latest and greatest new thing and the desire to want to upgrade, even if you just bought an iPhone X. Some of these temptations strike at our fears. We fear being alone, and so we stumble in relationships. We fear man, and so we work harder and longer hours in our studies or in our workplaces to seek the approval of uh, of those around us. We fear the future, so we try and we work hard to secure our future ourselves. We live in a world of constant taunts. Being a Christian used to be fairly respectable, but now it's downright laughable. The new Prime Minister in Australia is apparently a Christian, apparently a very firm one. I'm glad for that. But it was unsurprising to see comedians and programs during the week aimed at his faith for laughs. You know, they would never do the same thing if our leader was a Muslim or a Buddhist. And to be fair, some of the criticism in these comic sketches were on point. Our Prime Minister has done things in the past in his political life which seem to be at odds with his Christian faith. But you see that, and you hear how Christians are spoken about on the radio or in the papers or on campus at uni or amongst your work colleagues. And all of it adds up. It it adds up to this pile of taunts from this world, making it less and less likely that we will willingly stick out our necks as Christians. And add to that our own sinful nature, constantly wanting to pull us away or taunting us with guilt and shame for our sin. 
In this world, we've got so many distractions, temptations, and taunts that come. And we are here in the midst of all that, given a word and being asked to trust it. And it lays before us promises that seem too good to be true. And yet that's the challenge. When the taunts rise around us, externally or in here, will we silence them with the Word of God? Will we trust God's promises in the face of these challenges? Finally, in order to trust the promises of God, we need to know the promises of God. Hezekiah sent word to Isaiah to hear from God, give me something. God has sent his son Jesus to speak to us loud and clear. And ultimately, he has preserved for us his written word so that we might know God's thoughts and might know God in a deeper way. So how well do we know this word that we trust? Now, knowledge doesn't necessarily mean a deep trust and faith in God, right? Just because you know the Bible well doesn't necessarily mean, and, or just because you can give the right answers in Bible study, doesn't necessarily mean that you have a deep faith and trust. So some of us here might need to be gently rebuked for our, because our knowledge is deep, but our hearts are cold, either cold towards God or cold towards each other, right? It's not how it's meant to be. That said, it's also true that your trust in God will only ever be as deep as what you know. Your trust in God will only ever be as deep as what you know. One of the most difficult conversations I've ever had pastorally was about this time last year when one of my leaders came up to me struggling in the faith, ultimately walking away from it. And one of the things that she said in our conversation was she said she didn't know. She didn't know what this all meant. She didn't know how much it applied to her. She didn't know if it was true. For various reasons in her life, she began articulating in this conversation as she was walking away from Jesus, I just don't know. And on the flip side, one of the most encouraging things I heard last week was of someone who was wrestling and struggling with the faith and was this close to walking away and hasn't, and I asked her why, what's caused you to come back? And she said, because I'm now convinced of the resurrection, because I know that he is raised to life. Your faith and your trust will only ever be as deep as what you know. And God has done something so spectacular in sending his son Jesus to make himself known, to reveal himself so that we can know him deeper 
And the deeper we know God, the more we rejoice in Him, the more intimate our worship, and the more we will persevere in trusting Him. So how much are we plumbing the depths of Scripture for ourselves? How much are we plumbing the depths of Scripture with others in our lives? You know, life gets hard. Most of you guys are students, and you think life is hard now. I'm laughing with you, not at you. Life will get hard. You think you're tired and exhausted now? Just wait. And what's going to keep you going through all of that? When life gets hard and exhausting, the temptation will be, uh, maybe I'll skip Bible study this week, maybe I'll skip church this week, just so that I can rest. I need a bit of me time. When you're struggling with sin, what's going to keep you going? Ah, I'll just ignore it, or just one more time, or I'll just work harder at overcoming it. No, what keeps us steady is the sure foundation of knowing God. So let this passage be an encouragement to fan the desire to know Him more. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that in sending your son Jesus, you have made yourself known in ways that are too wonderful to comprehend. So help us grow this as I fan this flame within us to know you more through your word, to know your son better, that we may trust him to the end. Father, please keep doing this for our joy and for your glory, that your name will be known among the nations. We pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.